just I can look at a word and just say it. You know, it, it, it and it's taken. It's a skill that I've developed. It's not something that you're taught. Literacy. <laughs> that was good. Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by talking about whatever it was we talked about two weeks ago when we last did a show. I'm your host, Charles Bobinger. With me on the line, as always, from, I'm assuming, Princeton, New Jersey, is David Will. David, how's it going? Uh, I'm doing well. It is uh, Princeton, New Jersey, from which I speak, and uh, yeah, the students are freaking out the weather has turned uh you know all the seasons all the seasonal indicators of a you know little ivy league town mm. well we have you gotten any snow there at all because here in dc we have not even come close to snow uh no well i was i was telling you before we when we were warming up uh about thanksgiving in maine and while i was out there back in the woods working um there were some flurries which were uh welcome very it was it was amazing back there so i mean i could wax poetic about about that but i won't but yeah there was there was some snow the ground froze well that's that's good i mean winter winter still exists somewhere in america well frozen ground in the northeast is not the same as it is in some other places having grown up in new hampshire the ground might as well be frozen all the time because you know they don't call it the granite state for nothing yeah well yeah that too i mean i this is a, a very strange introduction to our to our show, but uh, you know, trying to dig up uh, this trench and just having like every time I put the shovel into the ground, hit some rock, and then have to go around the rock, and if it was small enough, pull it out. If it was too big, try to lever it out with a crowbar. You know, it was just <laughs> exercise and patience. Much like our show. Much like our show. Uh, no so for those of you, our listeners, um, we've been off for a couple of weeks, um, some of it intentional, some of it not, um, due to combinations of traveling and, of course, the holiday weekend. Um, but now we're back and the world has moved at such a pace recently that we're going to pause with this episode since we just uh, finished our arc on America a few weeks ago, we're going to talk about some news stories that have accumulated that we would like to have a discussion about. Um, one of the things I considered doing for you while we were off was to um, uh, put up the lost episode. And ep- uh, one week we did a warm-up chat with a recorder on um, before the show, and it actually went for 54 minutes and was long enough to just be a show this was about the Weinstein uh, revelations when they came out. The problem was society has moved so quickly over all of those issues that it was kind of horribly dated. Um, and at that point, I was going to have to preface it with a bunch of things, and it didn't really seem worth putting up on its own, although perhaps at some point as a time capsule, we can all look at that. Um, and uh, yeah, but for, for now then, let's start with that topic. Um, since we last said anything about that on this show, if we even have mentioned it before, um, 
there's been this epidemic of revelations of uh, sexual misconduct. And uh, uh, as we're recording this on December 3rd, uh, I think the most recent one was Matt Lauer. Has anybody happened since Matt Lauer? That was, what, Wednesday? Uh, yeah, I think there was a sort of Matt Lauer. I mean, there's there's Matt Lauer and then Garrison Keillor and then some other yeah. public radio person, I think, sort of lower lower profile. But, right. yeah, it's just a, a, a drip drop. Yeah, It's hard to keep track of them at this you know, point. There's like the occasional sort of burst of the dam and then but then just a perpetual drip drop of um, further you know, further allegations. And then, you know, and then also, um, uh, allegations coming out and adding to the allegations around previous cases. Right. So like the, the Franken, right. Right. Exactly. It is increasing. Yeah. Right. And that's, um, I mean, that's one that, and so that's uh, when you say dated, I assume that's sort of what you meant. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because when, it, when it was just, just the Weinstein stuff, I mean, uh, that was, a big sort of revelation and then who I, I don't know that I would have anticipated that it would become a, it would become a, a cultural movement to the moment that it, to the, to the extent that it has that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've been very um, pleased to some extent with the way that um, this is, this is still happening. It's not something that we've swept under the rug already and pretend it didn't exist. I, um, I mean, I, I think the gravity of the Weinstein allegations and how well reported Ronan Farrow's story was, right. um, was something that made people start to realize, I mean, perhaps if nothing else, the details in Ronan Farrow's story about it demonstrated to everybody um, that some of the things men especially tend to believe about sexual misconduct situations are myths. Um because it's it's natural, especially for men, to say, well, why didn't you report it immediately? And Ronan Farrow's story was able to explain how their careers basically would have been destroyed if they'd done that. And how some of these things result in settlements where they're not allowed to talk about it. Right. Or, you know, uh, just more, just to, I'm sure everybody understands, because if they're following this issue, but to, to specify, um, you know, the with Harvey Weinstein case in particular, the issue is that people who don't have careers yet um, right. are basically facing a choice of, or what he is presenting to them as the choice of, um, you know, submit to my uh, perverse demands and you will have a career. Otherwise you will not. And um, this is where things like Lupita Nyong'o's, uh, story uh, are really interesting and important and, and you know, sort of delicate to get right because she um, refused. You know, she said, even if this means I don't have a career, I'm not going to accept this debasement. Um, and uh, you can hear kind of a creeping chorus of victim blamers you know, right. take advantage of that, uh, of that narrative. But, um, what's so wonderful about the fact that this, uh, the avalanche is still growing, you know, there are more people who are, who are, are feeling, um, supported enough to be able to tell their stories and add their stories to the accumulation of, of, um, 
accusations against you know certain individuals and then just adding to the kind of general moment uh you know keeping the keeping the momentum going um <clears throat> part of what's great about that is that it <clears throat> keeps sort of the national attention focused on something that is actually really complicated and contains a lot of different types of cases and gives us the time to figure out the details, you know, that are, that are different from each other. Um, which, which I particularly value because there's so much urge to simplify, um, and having the sustained attention on this, that's been, you know, months now, um, where it's in the headlines, you know, something like one of these stories is in the headlines every day. One of the benefits of that, I think, is to have the time to work through, um, all the nuances, right. You know, together as a, as a country, as a world, really. Yeah. yeah. And this is in, in terms of the nuances, part of what has, I think, made this moment functional in, um, sort of the cultural way is that, um, the early cases have been such clear, um, examples. I mean, the Ronan Farrow story, especially it's, it's an example where there's so many witnesses over so many years and everybody knew quote unquote, um, right. or at least most people knew. Um, and it was so well reported. One of the things that we lose a bit, especially when people just shout fake news is yeah. that real reporting has standards. Real reporting, um, has a process and ethics that they go through in order to produce these stories. And we tend not to think about journalistic ethics until we have a situation where they've been violated. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking, in, in this, in, this is particularly appropriate in this case, the Rolling Stone article from some number of years ago about the UVA rape case. Um, right. as, as, as I am led to understand, and I'm not a journalist, everybody, I don't think anybody who listens to this uh, right now is a journalist, but um, journalism has its, its set of ethical standards and and its um, procedures are supposed to follow, and they didn't do that in the Rolling Stone case. Um, that was that was a failure of journalism rather than being a failure of um, of of people thinking, oh well, we're just going to make a lynch mob for any rape allegation we hear. That was just bad reporting. Um, right. Yeah. And yeah. No, that's a uh, you know, it's not that that doesn't that story uh, in its full. So the the revelation of the story as a fabrication doesn't discredit um, the movement to hold sexual predators right. accountable. It simply highlights the importance of this broader uh, issue of good journalism. So exactly. Not, yeah. And that's what happened with the Washington Post story about Roy Moore, which is that um, that was a, a very well-reported <laughs> story that they took their time on. Yep. They talked, they had, it was, what is it, 30 interviews with dozens of witnesses. They had all this corroborating evidence. I mean, people want to, people have this, men especially, have this natural reaction of fear to um, us believing people who make sexual uh, sexual misconduct allegations because they're all worried, well, what if this, what if somebody just makes this up? What if somebody just lies about me and um, and and then my life is just over? 
but the truth of the matter is these stories tend to be pretty well sourced and well reported to the point where it's not just a he said, she said with one person where there's no evidence. In the case of Roy Moore, there were all of these these um, there were these five women who didn't know each other who were approached by the post. There were all these people who remembered saying, oh, yes, we couldn't let him stay in the mall. Um, you know, right. it's it, this wasn't this wasn't a case of a person just making an allegation and um, and everybody just immediately believing it. Now, there will be situations where there is only one victim and that person may end up not getting believed. But that's a little different from what we're dealing with right now, because the current cultural moment seems to be more about getting rid of people who structurally abuse their power for things like this. And the yeah. people who do that tend to uh, seem, at least so far, to have been doing it um, on a regular basis in very um, consistent ways. And we've been able to have good reporters go down and track that. And what we saw with the James O'Keefe Project Veritas stuff is that a man who refuses to follow journalistic ethics tried to catch somebody else not following journalistic ethics, only he was thwarted because they followed journalistic ethics. Right. Uh, I mean, that uh, case yeah, was really good. This... I think the, the Project Veritas thing showed how um, how the good reporting works and why we should believe the earlier article about Roy Moore because they would have done their research to make sure that what they were saying was substantiated before they published it. Right. And in the, in this hyper-partisan uh, age, the fact that, I mean, there are good guys and bad guys, you know, uh, if you, if you deputize a woman to pretend to be a rape victim in order to discredit other real rape victims, you know, there's nothing that can explain or excuse or justify that. It's just utterly despicable. And, you know, the people who, regardless of their moral values and, you know, what they sort of <clears throat> believe, what their political positions are, you know, people who are just committed to a, a process aimed at getting to truth, which, you know, is what you were talking about, about journalistic ethics and adhering to that process, regardless of what they think, regardless of, you know, what they want the world to look like, you know, those guys are the good guys because they adhere to that process and they're honest about it. Um, and on the other side, you have all this corner cutting and um, bad faith and just blatant lying. And um, I mean, that's kind of a segue to other parts of the news of the last few weeks. Um, right. Um, yeah. Well, we but, could but use sitting that... on this issue, I mean, we don't I don't I don't I don't think that is a segue. But we don't we don't have to take that segue for the, at the moment. Um. But, uh, yeah, I just, um, you know, it's complicated. It's really, it's really complicated. You mentioned this case of like, oh, you know, there are going to be instances where there's only one accuser. And so, you know, the, like we can't necessarily predict now how those will go. Um, and again, you know, one of the values of, of the sustained attention and what's so encouraging about the fact that we have been able to, to keep focused um, on this, on this cultural moment, um, is that there are, you know, there are proposals for like a, um, disclosure escrow, uh, hmm. institution of some kind where people would submit claims and, but they would all be kept confidential until a sufficient number of claims were sort of accumulated towards an individual. And then there'd be a way of, 
than like checking to see if there was a, like a coordinated attempt to make such accusations. I mean, there's, you know, it's just one idea um, among many, but it's like, how do you solve the structural problems with, uh, with reporting, with getting, you know, getting at the center of a sort of the spider at the center of the network where the victims don't know each other. Um, And in the case of Roy Moore, as you say, that fact that they don't know each other um, once all the stories are discovered adds credence to the, uh, to the claims. But, you know, until this sort of exogenous event that leads them all to tell their stories, um, that, you know, the source of their credibility is also the reason that nothing happens for so long. Right. There was, they feel like they're alone. And so, like, how do you solve that structural problem of the victims feeling like they're alone? One is you just have this moment where everybody's talking about it. Um, but then eventually this moment will end. I mean, it'll hopefully end in some transformation leading to a better future. But then what is that better future? It, it, it's going to rely on some kind of structural change. And um, and that's just one. You know, this thing I said about the sort of uh, escrow Disclosure escrow um, is just one well, sort of proposal. When the Weinstein story broke, The Onion got ahead of everybody again and had an article that was um, woman files sexual complaint that will cause biggest yeah. scandal of 2037 or whatever it was. Oh, man. Um, yeah, the onion it's like so once enough women, enough other women have come forward to corroborate her story and she is believed. Um, yeah, it's 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 difficult because. On the one hand, we, we we get quick to say, look, the Washington Post story was was very believable because it has all of these elements that make it more believable. Um, but that doesn't mean that somebody who doesn't have all of those elements is lying. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's tricky. It's just, yeah. it is a tricky situation. And by its nature, this is an area where there's almost always little to no evidence in the right. physical of like little physical evidence. You're not going to get a lot of stuff that you can say this definitely clearly happened you can just find lots and lots of circumstantial evidence that or um that brings you to the point where you say okay well we can be pretty sure this happened maybe not enough to ever convict anybody for anything in some of these cases but enough that we as a society can say this person really shouldn't be a member of our public society in a leadership role anymore yeah that actually gets me and we should i think we should definitely discuss at least in part this distinction between accusations that have been made to people in the private sector uh even if by private sector we're talking about the media right and the fact that they have bosses and shareholders and corporate interests and they can simply be fired and compare that to public figures whose boss is their constituency right and who only gets a chance to fire them every two four or eight or six years right exactly and um you know, uh, you will know better than I, the, you know, the jurisprudence here. Um, but, uh, you know, there's the Powell case, um, in constitutional law that, you know, you have a sexual sort of sex scandal and a representative who was, uh, kept out of the house. Um, but ultimately the, my understanding is the case law says, you know, you can't, like the house can't fire a member of the house, only the, um, 
you know, the members of the of the district can. Well, if I remember that, that case correctly, and it's been at least seven years since I read it, um, I think that case was actually about how the Constitution does provide a method for the House to um, expel a member. But the problem in that situation was they were trying to use a lower voting threshold to exclude a member. Right. So they were right. effectively just trying to do what the Constitution already allowed them to do, but with fewer votes. And um, so, yeah, <laughs> we, we do we do have. How about that for a segue to uh, right. yeah, that's, the other news? This yeah. will we'll segue in pretty well here. I mean, this is a topic that's constantly evolving, and I'm sure everything we've said today will be obsolete by next week. Um, well, no, what I wanted to say, though, um, was so there's, you know, the Constitution um, provides barriers to the way that we are, as a society, seeing this issue resolved in, like, the private sector. But um, it strikes me that, you know, I'm, I'm really disappointed. It's like, we mentioned the Franken case earlier, and um, there are these... You know, there's sort of the initial accusation, and now there are more people who are making accusations. And it strikes me that Franken could do an, a tremendous service to the country and his party by resigning. And whatever you, whatever your personal opinion about whether he has to resign, whether you know the accusations are um, such that they force him to resign, it just strikes me that. Okay, you can make that argument, or you can make the argument that he could just do this incredible good right. by setting that example of saying, like, you know, I have my own recollection of those events, and I'm not admitting more guilt than I already have, but, uh, or, you know, whatever version of that kind of a statement he felt like he would have to make, if he, you know, if he had to, if he feels like he did have to make it, but simply say, um, I'm going to take this opportunity to withdraw because I am going to examine myself and reflect and more importantly, uh, seed the stage so that the coming generation can take over and hold themselves to a higher standard than we knew to hold, hold ourselves to, you know, to make some comment like that, um, would be a tremendous blessing to yeah. to the country, and someone's got to you know someone's got to fall on their sword, and that's a, the way it works generationally. Um, when the old pass the torch to the young, uh, the you know both can make excuses for everything that they had to deal with, you know, for all the compromises that were made before they got to the scene and that they inherited. Um, but in order to actually move forward and overcome some of those corrupt bargains. Like someone's got to draw the line. And it strikes me that um, Franken, it would also be a tremendous, I mean, it would, I think it would also be a very good thing for him personally, for his legacy, if he drew that line. Right. Um, because people would look back on him as a, you know, tremendous public spirited uh, figure, you know, that, Yeah, so so that's my that's my take on that. That I mean, there's, that introduces another level here too. Of we're not just talking about evidentiary standards and you know what's the threshold to reach before you force someone out of office as opposed to forcing someone out of a job. Um, that's one set of discussions, but then another one here is just the tremendous good that can come 
from him holding himself to a higher standard. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I agree. Um, part of the, there's a, there's a, there are some ways in which the Franken situation was both good and bad for this movement. One of the ways in which it's bad is that um, we just had the Roy Moore stuff, yeah. which was much more serious. And then we get the Franken stuff and we have to make the point that it is serious too. And we don't want to tolerate it, but it's also not as serious. Right. And that's, and that's the, difficult. it's also the unique, the unique power <clears throat> of Donald Trump is to, I mean, combine the unique power of Donald Trump is to exploit the nihilistic willingness of his constituency to um, ignore these actual distinctions, you know, these real distinctions that, you know, even if we say that Franken, um, you know, we admit that Franken like serially grabbed the butts of all these women in, in all these photo lines. Um, as bad as that is, it is a completely different order from sexually assaulting children. Right. It's just like, how can we, how do we even need to be having this discussion? Why is that something we would even need to, to specify? Like it's, it's so obviously true. Um, but this moment, uh, that we're in politically and socially, we have Donald Trump whose mastery of equivocation and, um, pot calling the kettle blacking or, um, you know, making the moat in your eye bigger than the plank in mine ing. Um, it's just, I mean, there's a, there's a reason that he's in office at this, you know, at this time. Right. I mean, I'm sure a lot of frustration over Trump managing to win despite 16 or so accusers. I mean, I'm sure that had a lot to do with people becoming more vocal. About yeah, for sure. This. For sure. For sure. Um, at least to have the movement sustained. I don't know how long Ronan Farrow had been working on his article, and I don't know um, how it might have gotten published without this. I do know that wasn't he went to somebody else first before um, the New Yorker published it, if I understand correctly, and they turned it down. Yeah, I, I actually haven't read all the details on that, okay. but I think he was, I mean, he was at MS, or he was at NBC, and he right. did it in NBC, and they quashed the story, and that's why he went to the New Yorker. I mean, that's my understanding of how that went. That makes, um, yeah, that's yeah. pretty, uh, pretty but, bad. I mean, but, but also here, I mean, just, I, I, I regret now that I, I don't recall her name, um, but the woman who came up with the Me Too hashtag, Oh, you know, I don't know that I ever a, knew who that was. I mean, there was a, there was a woman who came up with it and there, there's another level of like, you know, you know, who really came up with, you know, in, in air quotes, like came up with some particular thing, but, um, sort of complicated set of arguments about that general question of like who owns authorship in popular culture. Uh, cause there's so many people who have similar ideas circulating at a given time. But my understanding is there was, you know, a, 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 a black woman who was some kind of uh, maybe a teacher or some kind of social activist who came up with like me too as a hashtag for sexual assault and harassment like 15 years ago. Hmm. Um, and it's like, why didn't we listen then? Right. I mean, that's part of the whole, that's part of this whole moment is why are we, why is this only happening now? And as you pointed out, obviously part of the answer is, um, the reaction to Donald Trump making people angry and 
making people more willing to um, to demand solutions and responses to this anger. Um, but it still is the case that like, you know, this, this idea was out there of like, let's use Twitter, let's use the internet to, to share these stories and call people to account. And it came out a really long time ago. I mean, not probably wasn't 15 years ago because Twitter wasn't around then, but it was very old. Um, this woman's story relative to what we're dealing with now, <clears throat> because this issue of harassment is itself extremely old. Right. Yeah. And I mean, part of what the me too hashtag is able to accomplish is it's always kind of amazing to me how many men are in complete fantasy worlds when it comes to some of these sexual assault allegations where they think yeah. that it is not nearly as common as it is. They have um, very incorrect views on, um, on, on, they assume that they know how a victim would react. And then when the victims don't react the way they assume a person would react, they say it must be false. There was an article in New York Times last weekend about women who would get charged um, by the police for making false statements on allegations that would later turn out to be true. Yeah. And this is because it said in the article that the, the victims were not reacting the way a, the police officers assumed a rape victim would react. Right. And that's just – you just have to – a lot of men just don't understand this. I mean I know I was certainly this – because it's not intuitive to how a lot of men feel where they always just want vengeance whenever anything makes them mad. Um, you, it, it, it's, it's a lesson that men need to learn that women do not always come forward immediately for a variety of reasons. I remember when we were in college and we were having – there was a, a – I think it was a lunch or a dinner discussion. You weren't there. Um, about the Duke lacrosse scandal, which, of course, turned out to be fabricated. But one of the men was saying, oh, you know this is fake because if you were in a situation like that, you would report it immediately. And every single woman at the table went, no, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, and, I mean, that's just kind of – that's kind of what we're dealing with is that there are a lot of myths that need to be dispelled. And as I said before, I think the Weinstein case helped to dispel some of those myths because it illustrated so clearly um, why the women wouldn't come forward publicly right. immediately because they knew they would be – look, we, we now know that Weinstein had spies in the media yeah. To, yeah. to deal with this. Um, we well, know this is, enough now. Yeah. Well, and, but, you know, again um, – uh, you know, the Weinstein <clears throat> thing is kind of a, a point, like a sort of a, the extreme of a spectrum right. of these cases that have come out so Absolutely. far, because, you know, again, and again, Franken is kind of on the other end of the extreme to an extent, because part of it is, it's like, okay, so why did the people not come out and accuse Weinstein? Well, it's because of this power that he had over even people who were not his employees, right? And that's part of the that's part of the issue here is he he had such a role in that industry that someone without any clear formal uh, organizational subordination to him was still under his power, right? So there's just this incredible uh, this incredible range of sort of the shadow that fell from him. Right. And uh, on the I, one hand, versus someone like Franken, where, the, you know, this um, woman who opened the gates uh, for him, you know, what did she want? Part of the reason she didn't 
make my understanding is part of the reason she didn't make this complaint earlier is that, um, you know, she didn't want to destroy his career. She just wanted to tell her story and share in this moment and call him to account and demand an apology, which once he gave it, she accepted. And so that's an, uh, that's another interesting part of the nuance here that I mean, I, it doesn't change what I said about what I think Franken should do. Um, but it is part of this, you know, part of the complexity of figuring out the nuance of this, where it's not, they're not all Weinstein, you know, and they're not exactly. all, um, these, I, I mean, I agree yeah. with you that Franken could do a lot of, Franken would have to take one for the team. I know it wouldn't really be, I mean, fair quote unquote to Franken to say, you need to resign over this, but it would really be doing a solid for the whole movement <laughs> and for everybody if he would do that. And of course, we can't escape the, the the fact that part of the reason we think that that would be good for the movement and for everybody is because we know there's a Democratic governor in Minnesota who will replace him with a Democrat. And that's the other subtext to this, which is that part right. of the reason I think the Weinstein stuff took off so much is that people like Donald Trump, who would be so quick to dismiss yeah, yeah, such yeah. allegations normally, because, <clears throat> oh, it's a big Democratic donor. We can try to use this to go after Hillary Clinton. And then... He's, it's sort of like when you he was playing with fire there and he didn't realize that it would sort of come back to um, come back against the Republicans soon enough with the Roy Moore allegations. Um, and I think that it really helped the movement start off that Weinstein was a Democratic donor at the beginning. But then it kind of hurt a little bit later that the then Roy Moore gets accused. And then um, and then after Roy Moore is accused, it's Al Franken in terms of politics, at least. And then the Al Franken one is the opposite party, but it's not as serious. So it looks like the Democrats are suddenly being partisan by not forcing Franken to step down. But it, we really, as a society, when it comes to social punishments, um, we don't have preset rules for how you would how, how to punish people. Franken should be punished for what he did. But what's the level of punishment that's appropriate? Right. It's not. And then what's the, what's the process? Right. Of going through well, contrition and, you know, redemption. I mean, that, right. I don't think we should be focused on laying that path out right now. We should be right. focused on encouraging more women yeah. to tell to their tell stories, stories and, and exactly. figure that out. If nothing else, I think the important part of this moment is, as you said before, that people feel free to tell the stories that, that happened to them. Right. That they're not going to be treated as badly as they have in the past. There was also, again, The Onion. <laughs> um, had an article some years ago that was um, woman. It was something about a woman fabricates rape allegations just so she can get all the death threats. Yeah, um, yeah, right. I'm sure. It was, I'm sure it was phrased a little differently, but yeah, I can imagine yeah. that as the. So yeah, I mean, the onion, the onion is just so so good. Yeah. They, um, by yeah. the way, to anyone listening, there's also a great Onion style site um, from it, that's a parody of magazines like Cosmo. It's called Reductress. And um, they do a lot of it's an onion style thing, but um, from a very feminine perspective, especially parodying the kinds of stuff women read in magazines. Um, it's it's just really great. I mean, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. They've got some fantastic stories and some I can't even even on our thing with an explicit tag. I wouldn't share the headline, but um, it's a really it's a really great site as well. Um, okay, so uh, it, we um, David has so expertly created segues and then <laughs> torn them away from my grasp <laughs> as I tried to stop him when we'd pre-agreed how long each segment was going to be today. 
and he just wouldn't let me get out of this one. Um, which is fair. I mean, this is a topic where you don't want to do it in injustice by just pulling away just because the, the, the clock arbitrarily hit um, a particular point. Um, I will note also, for those of you listening, that due to technical reasons, I cannot see David today, but he can see me. So <laughs> that may affect some of our banter. Um, yeah. All right, well, now we're going to segue to lies and fabrications that really are lies and fabrications and talk about the Republicans' tax plan that just passed. Oh, man. Um, for, so where we are right now is, as I said, this is December 3rd. So it was just uh, Thursday night that the Republicans in the dead of night, was it 2 a.m. or whatever? Yeah. Um, or was it Friday? Man, I can't. It's impossible to keep up with the news these days. Um, that they passed what has to be one of the worst tax plans ever. Um, I'm just kind of shocked by the... This is a sort of a thing that they passed because they wanted to pass it and details didn't matter to them. Yep. I. It's It's kind of hard to have a tax cut that increases the deficit by over a trillion dollars and actually raises taxes on right. most people. I I mean, I, I've been looking at, I was just thinking about it this morning. Um, my health care premiums are going up about $700 for next year. And they were going up about $700 for next year before all of this, just when Trump was playing his stupid games with uh, whether or not right. he was going to reimburse the insurers the way he was supposed to. And that alone ended up costing me $700 because, I mean, maybe they would have gone up to some extent anyway, but my premiums actually went down last year before going up this year. Um, but they went up by more than they otherwise would have because of the stupid games he was playing. Yeah. And... Uh, that, I mean, when you factor sure in now that one. they're trying to force out the individual mandate, which will make premiums skyrocket even further, yeah. I mean, it's it's this is I don't know what one can really even say about this tax plan other than that it shows that the GOP has hollowed itself out um, and it has really little moral center left. And I don't know what to think of the fact that Susan Collins was bought off so easily. Yeah, I mean, I think. I think it had to have been, and and part of this you're stepping back is you know a lot of my. I mean, I had a terrible night. I mean, I, I got stressed out and um, upset thinking about it. You know, the, the, the encapsulation for me of this whole process is, um, you know, the extrapolation from their uh, change in the state and local tax deduction. Right. So, so what does that really mean? Well, what it means is, so between that and their addition of um, increasing, you know, the extent to which you can write off um, the money you spend on private school for your kids. So you put those two together and it means you can no longer write off uh, the taxes you pay to send your children to public school. Right. But now you can write off the taxes or the money you spend to send your child to a private school. It's just, it's filthy. It's utterly despicable. I mean, if that's, if that's an accurate representation of the bill, which I think it is, um, it's just despicable. That being said, um, nothing has actually passed yet. I mean, right. the Senate, the Senate you know, passed a bill. house bill has passed a Senate bill has passed and, you know, we don't actually have final passage. And so that it, as, as terrible as that moment was, it's not, uh, the final step. And I think that, and this gets back to what you were saying about Susan Collins. I think that, um, 
you know, this is I mean, the fact that she was willing to put her name on this. The fact that McCain was willing to put his name on this is it should remain. I mean, it's not like it should be shocking. It should be disgusting. But, um, you know, they're doing it because this is the final. <laughs> it's like the last ditch right. to do something and they have to keep the process moving. But the bill hasn't passed yet, and it's not clear. There's still a possibility that it won't. Right, but that's very slim at this point. I mean, it's hard right. to see it breaking down from here. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't. I, I'm trying to f- strike the right balance here between um, realism and resignation, and uh, sort of the need to. Con- I mean, for one thing, for me, like, and from all my friends who are in graduate school. Uh, the house bill includes this catastrophic increase in the taxes that people would pay on, um, you know, basically a PhD student who's getting a stipend of a certain amount and a tuition waiver of a certain amount <clears throat> would potentially have their tax bill increase by 400%. Right. Although in that one, I have heard some pushback on that one where it, um uh what that's doing so to clarify this system a bit um i don't know exactly how most universities word it but that um grad students are doing some amount of work that then um gives them it's not is it it's it's free tuition or how does the that issue work is you, the issue is as a grad student you know you are there's this this whole other issue of the sort of the labor aspect oh, yes. should, you know, should that be going on back students um, but <clears throat> you get a certain amount of money as a stipend and you get a certain amount of money as tuition support and um, you know the numbers vary but even at like a you know relatively cheap um, department and you know uh, not Ivy League not super expensive uh, program, you're still talking about something like twenty or thirty thousand dollars of tuition that the university writes off. And part of the reason they write it off in that way is that that's the grant structure for the university as a whole. And when they, you know, when the chemistry department writes a grant um, to the federal government for, or sorry, excuse me, when they write a grant application, um, part of the money that they are getting from the universe, uh, from the government or foundations or whatever is um, the way the current accounting processes and applications work is that's what it's nominally going towards. And I think I'm mean, anticipating what I think you were going to say, which is that basically um, the response to this could just be sort of accounting where it's like, well, just don't call it tuition a scholarship Re- instead of tuition. Reclassify things. But the point is like, you know, we were talking, you and I were talking about, or I was saying, you know, in some ways I'm conservative, in some ways, you know, I'm a Jacobin. The idea that Republicans would say, we as conservatives will throw a monkey wrench into the way our higher education system works just because they can probably change things around and figure out a solution. You know, just we're going to we're going to break it because they can probably fix it after we break it. Like, that's not what conservatism is. <laughs> that's not what, you know, that's not a responsible approach. Um, 
like it, it is true that perhaps universities could sh- change that around, but it's not going to happen overnight because again, there's a, the whole system is built on, or you know, a significant part of the funding of universities is built on those applications and those grants and they can't just decide overnight, like, oh, we'll just reclassify, you know, the support we're giving the students and we'll say that grad students don't pay tuition at all, you know, or whatever. It's just, it's, it's not the worst thing in the bill, um, but it's a very immediate, direct and telling example of how, um, slapdash and irresponsible the whole process is and all for what all for what right you i know. mean that that does also raise you know the interesting question which is um if this change can be worked around so easily why did you make it right like, why is the change in there at all then um, right there is by the way one other side note to that another thing that has made people mad this one i looked into and um this actually does seem legit uh, people have complained about the uh, private plane um, d- uh, deduction or exemption mm. or whatever it is in there. Apparently, that's actually just codifying something that was already a thing. They're just making mm-hmm. it like that's actually not a new thing. They're just codifying something that was already being done. So apparently yeah. that one is not worth getting mad about. Um, but or Or is worth getting more mad about because whether it was present before or not, if it's if it's something we shouldn't be supporting, you know, in the tax code, then get mad about it. Yeah. In general, I'm not, um, I'm, I, in general, I'm, this is just the lawyer in me. I'm just fond of whenever there's something that you're already doing, you might as well codify it. Um, I just think that that's a better way to go about things. Um, you can then get mad about it and repeal it later, but I do like to have these things be, as somebody who's had to go through so many things, like, wait, we're doing this, but why are we, what's our authority for doing this? You know, that's, it's really great to actually just have that in there. But, but you mentioned process and that's what this show wants to talk about to a certain extent, which is what is the process you use to get to whatever conclusion it is you end up reaching. And, um, this tax bill, like the healthcare bill before it is a big example of what happens when you just completely ignore process and just do whatever you want just to pass something through and you end up with a horrible tax bill that's got handwritten adjustments to it when they're voting right. on it. Handwritten and adjustments be, you might not clear, be able to read. Just to be clear, uh, I um, assume that you, by the health bill before it, you mean the attempts to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Yes. Because there's this narrative that the the you know, the right is trying to put forward that, like, Oh, well, you know, the Democrats rammed the ACA through and now, well, it's our turn and we're going to ram this through. Right. Well, that's a complete lie when you look at how the ACA It's just a complete lie. It's it's just impossible to compare the, you know, 10-month process of, you know, painstakingly negotiating and explaining the ACA and then getting to the point of, okay, well, if you're not going to play ball, then we're going to ram it through with the votes we have, you know, after this painstaking process as opposed to, um, like, what are we voting on? I don't know. We got this... 500 pages 20 minutes ago uh we have a couple hours so let's uh yeah let's just get it done you know uh, just shocking just shocking and in, in, in the senate it's just anyway obviously the world doesn't benefit from one more person whining and complaining about uh about this but it is pretty 
I mean, it's worth being on the record expressing one's um, disappointment and disdain for the way this is. Yeah, I agree with you on both counts. I mean, nobody listening to this is going to get anything extra special out of us complaining (laughs) about um, the ways in which this is a violation of so many principles. Um, But it is important to be on the record saying at the time this was a terrible bill that was terrible in large part because of the horrible process it went through. I mean, I think this bill is symptomatic of the rot that has been hurting the Republican Party in that they have one solution for every problem. It's cutting (laughs) taxes on the rich and cutting social spending. That's it. That's everything they do comes back to that. And the health care bill was basically the same (laughs) as this bill insofar as they're about cutting taxes on the rich and cutting social services. The health care bill was Mm -hmm. let's cut social services so we can cut taxes on the rich. This one is we're going to cut taxes on the rich and, oh, let's also hurt social services. And and there was the part of the lie about it in the process was when they said, um, okay, well, this is going to create so much growth. Don't worry. It'll pay for itself. And then they said, okay, well, what if it doesn't, we'll put in a trigger so we can raise taxes. Then some of, them, some, some of them said, no way, we want these taxes to be permanent because all we care about is these tax cuts. So mm-hmm. why don't we make it instead a trigger to cut spending, which is what they were promising. That Everybody was saying that the bait and switch was going to be, we're going to cut taxes now, make the deficit bigger, say the deficit doesn't matter. Then in, ten year, then in five years, we're going to say, look at how big the deficit is, we have to cut social services. Well, they skipped that whole waiting five years part. Right. They just did it immediately. Yeah, it's right in two days, yeah. Yeah, and nothing matters, so it didn't get stopped, and that didn't have any impact on anything. It was – this is one of the least popular bills in ages, and – Well, again, this gets back to what I was saying before, which is – I mean, it's not all lost. And even if it is all lost, this – I mean, it's telling to me that – you know, and Joe Manchin went on the floor and said, like, I wanted to be right. on this bill. You know, they wrote this so that even I would not be on this bill. Uh, and that is really telling. Right. I mean, the fact that none of the red state senators who, you know, just a couple months ago, um, all the talk, you know, on the left was, can these people be trusted you know, what kind of deals are uh, is the you know the Republicans going to cut with Heidi Heitkamp or uh, you know or Joe Manchin, um, and that it's like the the fact that their opposition to this was just guaranteed from the beginning is actually really telling and important, and it just it's one of the many things that gets um, sort of covered over by this crazy tornado of of everything else going on. Um, but that's the, I mean, there, there was, there could have been a problem, like cutting corporate taxes, um, rationalizing. I mean, as you said, like, uh, rationalizing and codifying things that are actually already happening, right? Like it would have been a good thing to have tax reform, real oh, tax yeah. reform. Um, and the Republicans could have made it very hard for people like, um, you know, McCaskill, Mansion, Heidkamp, Donnelly, whatever, to, to to stay off the bill, um, but they didn't bother, right? And you know that's the process. That's what we're. T- that's our plaintiff little voice. You know, our plaintiff little voices um, in, in unison here, calling for 
a return to that kind of a system, which I think is also just good politics too. Right. Um, I mean, the Republicans are now staring down the barrel of just a catastrophic wipeout. Um, if the approval ratings, you know, if, if past is path, excuse me, if past, uh, precedent, you know, bears out in 2018 and 2020, um, they're headed for a really catastrophic wipeout. And then what do they get out of this? It gets reversed. I mean, a lot of this stuff can just get reversed. Well, but not until Trump is kicked out of office. They're not going to have well, a veto proof way to do that for a while. I mean, and they, the, part of the problem is the calendar is so bad for the Democrats that you, it could be a ridiculous and gerrymandering is such a thing. Right. Clearly. They could really wind up. I mean, in the Senate, the calendar will hurt them in the house. The gerrymandering will hurt them. They could end up winning by, by 8% and still not take the house. No, I'm, I'm very aware of that. But the, but again, part of my point there is the Republicans have that buffer and they can play it safe, but instead they're driving it to the limit. And well, you I, know. I think the conclusion that I'm sort of pulling out of this, which when you look at it in the context of the health care bill, when you look at it in the context of what every Republican policy has been for the last 20 years, the conclusion that's right there. Sometimes we have to talk about the conclusion that's right there, but that we have to we feel like we shouldn't talk about because it's almost too mean to the other side. When you, did you read that Adam Sewer um, article in The Atlantic about Trump voters? Uh, no, I haven't read it, but okay. I think I, well, this is, know, it's part of the sort of Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, right. Well, a, a big part of it was just that it, it was just saying, look, we try and, the media tries not to call them racist because we feel like that's a bad thing to do, but that is the conclusion that's staring us in the face. Um, and stepping aside for a moment, whether that happens to be true of Trump supporters in this case, there's one clear solution that makes everything make sense that's staring us in the face the whole time, and we talk around it by trying to come up with, well, what is good politics? Why are they doing this? The solution might just be that the only purpose the Republicans have in office is to cut taxes on the rich. Like, that really yeah. is just all they're there for. And No, I totally, I mean, that is all the... they're there for. Like, everything else is just whatever. This is all about cutting taxes on the rich, and they don't care about any other consequences. That's what they're there for. Um People say that term limits would be good, but if you want to look at a potential problem with term limits, consider this. One of the reasons that a politician can do something incredibly unpopular and awful like this tax bill is that they know if it's going to be a wave year and they're probably going to lose anyway, and remember it's the moderates who tend to lose in wave years, then, um, then well, what, what are they going to do afterwards? They're probably going to work for some lobbying firm. And they're going to be making a lot more money if they do what the lobbying firm wants them to do now. The leaving office gives you worse incentives than staying in office in that, uh, from that perspective. And, I mean, I just think that we've hit a point after 30 years after Reagan that um, the Republican Party is about one thing, and that's cutting taxes on the rich. And the cutting of social services is incidental. I don't think that, aside from some people who just really hate anybody being on welfare— well, yeah, the proof opposed. of this, I mean, the, the, you know, term limits, I totally agree with you. I, I think maybe some people would make that argument, but I don't think it's particularly relevant to this topic. Um, but the, I mean, the proof of the last point you said about uh, social services is in this uh, Rubio Lee 
uh, attempt to, you know, quote unquote, attempt to preserve the um, child tax credit. And so it's like if the, you know, if family values actually means anything and if um, Republicans, if conservatives actually have a vision of an American future of, you know, government uh, support for functioning families and, you know, white babies to preserve our white civilization for Steve King and his racist, you know, allies, um, then you would actually try to balance cutting taxes on the rich with um, a child tax credit to encourage people to have children and to make it easier for families to form and, you know, in, in the future to develop. But Rubio and Lee just rolled over. You know, they had, they had the ability to demand a higher tax, uh, child tax credit, but, you know, cause with, uh, with Corker defecting, you know, they could have demanded it and had, you know, the ability to sink the bill if they didn't. But as you said, I mean, the, the priority clearly was, um, cutting the corporate taxes, cutting taxes on the highest earners. And so they rolled over and, you know, that it was interesting watching that argument, um, unfold, you know, on the right, uh, of people saying like, this actually isn't <laughs> like, this isn't what we want, you know, what's going on. Like, uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, right. no, there's just no, there's just no, there's no, there's no, there's no there. There's no integrity, uh, at all. I mean, the only integrity, as you say, is derived from the principle that their purpose is to cut taxes on, on the wealthiest. Um, I mean, all the evidence always comes back to that. Everything else is just a ploy they do to win elections. They, yeah. I mean, look at how often you see these well, oh, they, look, it's a conservative anti-abortion congressman who threatened, who, who told his mistress to get an abortion. Oh, right. we're so shocked. Roy Moore, <laughs> he's this anti-sex evangelical. He's been trying to sleep around with kids and the other pastors are not actually upset by this. Oh, we're so shocked. Every time I hear about another pastor excusing Roy Moore's behavior so we can get into the Senate, I'm just uh, I just keep thinking of John 19, uh, John 19. I can't remember the specific verse, but the and the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, um, you know, this. Uh, yeah. Again, it's I don't think we need to belabor the point, but it's just uh, I just. Predictable, but nevertheless, somehow still shocking. The right. degree of hypocrisy. I think the, what is, from... So, if we think in the broader sense, what is the lesson we pull from this? And I think part of the right. lesson you pull from this is what a lot of people have been saying since Trump got elected. People from authoritarian countries have been saying, "Look, here are some of the lessons that we've learned." And one of the ones that I keep hearing people say over and over again is, "Believe them when they say what they want to do." A, a large, a well, large part of what I, we, what people have been doing about Trump is he will say things like, I want the DOJ to go to prosecute my political enemies. And I, and then, and, and then when he gets in office, he's like frustrated because he's not allowed to do that. He meant it when he said that. Yeah. But he also said, I'm going to cut taxes on, you know, I'm going to drain the swamp. I'm going to cut taxes on the little guy. You know, yeah, I'm going to increase my own tax bill. Like, I mean, I don't well, believe them when they say bad things. I guess. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's this whole, there, I mean, I don't know, there's this whole, I mean, the sort of doom and gloom about America becoming an authoritarian country. Like, yes, we should be jealous of our liberties, 
and protective of the Constitution. But at the same time, I am on the side of the people saying, like, the guardrail, like, many of the guardrails have failed, but not all of them. And uh, we shouldn't become hysterical yet. Right. My my perspective on this remains the same as it was when Trump was elected, which is that this we're in for a disastrous few years where lots of terrible things like this tax bill are going to happen. And I've always been confident that this era will pass, but we will be the worst for it. Bad things are going to happen and those bad things are going to linger for a long time. It doesn't mean we're in a constant downward trajectory. We'll get back up a bit and it will take a while. We're going to lose a lot over the next few years. In terms of our international standing, trying to get back to the U.S.-led order that served us so well for so long, we may never get completely back to where we were. Um, That could, I mean, his his biggest legacy is probably going to be destroying our alliances, fraying our alliances. Um, Yeah. Although I think, I mean, in a strange way, I try to I try to keep abreast of the Brexit, um, uh, you know, Brexit negotiations and the effects of Brexit on the EU and the migrant, uh, you know, the immigration crisis that the EU is dealing with. And the EU obviously has its own problems, but in a strange way, Brexit and Donald Trump come from this, from like a, from certain shared um, romantic, nostalgic, chauvinistic imaginations of, of certain constituencies um, that have come to the fore now as a result of these um, constitutional processes sort of, you know, you have the referendum and you have just the, you know, regular presidential election in the U S and this backward looking delusional constituency that that um, turned out for those elections and the irresponsible uh, utopian, you know, naive sort of rainbow coalition that could have won those elections, but simply failed to because they didn't realize the, the scope of the threat. Um, in both cases, this, as you said, this sort of terrible midterm reality has been foisted upon the world. Um, but the effect might be a kind of purging of those negative uh, sort of fundamentals, you know, no, but I mean, that I mean, as we were talking in about the before, past, the that Weinstein happened in thing. Germany in 1945. Yeah, let's not let's not go there. Um, I just meant more in the sense that sometimes there is a when people purge things that are bad, it can be cataclysmic as it happens. Not necessarily. Yeah, no, obviously, obviously don't. I'm not saying like, oh, it'll be good to get it all out. I I totally and I I was trying to say this. I totally agree with you. Um, The as a result of this terrible irresponsibility and stupidity and delusion, um, we are inflicting our this just scourge on ourselves um that was avoidable and is is terrible um 
and is destroying some people's lives. It's ending some people's lives. I mean, there's blood on the hands of the people who, you know, voted for Jill Stein, who, um, you know, who didn't educate themselves uh, about the issues and, you know, didn't vote or, or voted for Donald Trump. I mean, this is just true. Um, but what I'm saying is, you know, the EU may well become stronger as a result of getting, you know, kicking Britain out. I mean, about of Britain, you know, uh, wanting to have its cake and eat it, eat it too, and laboring under this delusional fantasy that they can have the Brexit that they want. And then the EU, if the EU can hold together and enforce order in response to that crisis, it could strengthen the EU, strengthen the rule of law, um, and sort of deliberate legalism, which would be a boon for the whole world. And that could emerge as, and this is sort of an old idea of, you know, European soft power as a, as a new pole for the 21st century. Um, you know, I'm not, uh, Pollyanna-ish about that, but it's possible, right? And that would be a very good thing if that did happen. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, so, so I'm not, but again, all anybody's it, it, going to yeah. pull out of this conversation was that you said there was blood on the hands of Jill Stein voting. <laughs> and all they're going to remember from me is what I mentioned Germany in 1945. Yeah, right. Well, um, I think the last thing I'm worried about is offending anyone stupid enough to vote for Jill Stein. So, uh, let me, that's, let me, that's let me go fair. with that. <laughs> I, yeah. I guess I can't really object too strongly on that point that like, I don't think we were going to have a reasoned discussion with a Jill Stein voter right. um, about that particular decision. Um, all right. Well, we have gone a little bit over, uh, thanks to David's amazing ability to resist segues. Um, so we're going to skip the third topic we were going to talk about today, which had to do with the Mueller investigation. Um, and the Turkish connection to... And the Turkish connection. To that issue. Uh, David, this means I expect next week's episode to be a very highly researched uh, presentation on that subject by you. Um so uh, I'll expect many things from the future. I most of them bad. Um, <laughs> so I guess this time when we're signing off, uh, rather than as we're closing in on time, rather than doing anything particularly long or interesting, I'm just going to uh, hang up. <laughs>